Good morning. My name is Mitchell Slater. I'm one of the elders here at River Oaks Community Church. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 13 today. So let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts, the 13th chapter. Now, while you're turning there, I want to remind you of the time when Jesus gathered his disciples together and asked them what was probably the most important question in the history of asking questions, which is, who do you say that I am? Now, before this, Jesus had asked another question. He said, who do the people say that, I, say that I am? What's the popular opinion about me? And he said, some say John the Baptist, other Elijah, or one of the prophets. And in our day, there's a lot of thoughts and opinions about Jesus. He's a good teacher. He was a loving example. He was a prophet. He was some kind of an, an angel. All kinds of thoughts and opinions about Jesus. But the question always comes back from the risen Jesus to each one of us, who do you say that I am? It's the most important question that will ever be asked of you. And our passage this morning in Acts chapter 13 is going to give us a clear and beautiful answer. So before we get into the text, let's go to the Lord to find help in prayer. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you boldly in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus, to ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts and open up your word so that we could see glorious and wonderful things out of your word. Pray that you would show us, Jesus, you would reveal to us deeper and deeper who he is and what he's done for us. I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that you would grant them saving faith and repentance unto life. So Holy, Sp Holy Spirit, please do your work by exalting the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst. We ask this in his name for the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So as we're getting into Acts chapter 13, I want to remind you about where we're at in the book of Acts. The book started with Jesus telling his disciples in chapter 1, verse 8, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the, the earth. And in chapter 13, we are well into that fourth stage of taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. Earlier in chapter 13, the Holy Spirit sent Paul and Barnabas on what we know as their first missionary journey, a mission to bring the gospel to people who had never heard it, especially in the area of the Mediterranean basis, right around the Mediterranean Sea. <clears throat> and as you can see on the map, their journey started uh, in Antioch in Syria, where they were sent out from. They traveled down to the island of, of Cyprus, Barnabas's uh, hometown, <clears throat> And they preached the gospel from one side of this island to the other, from Salamis to, to Paphos, at which point in our text, they, they sail into the city of Perga, which is on the, the southern uh, side of the region of Galatia. And then they travel inland to Pisidian Antioch, a different Antioch than the one they were sent out from originally. 
And this is where our passage takes place today, Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 43. So I want us to begin reading this passage. We're not going to read uh, the whole thing at once. We're going to read it uh, section by section as we go through uh, the sermon this morning. So let's read the first few verses that serve to set up Paul's first recorded sermon. So Acts 13, verses 13 through 15. Luke says this as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. <clears throat> but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. <clears throat> After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people... Say it. So the missionary team, they land in Galatia and they head into Antioch. It's at this point that John Mark abandons the mission, which will become a big deal in just a couple of chapters in chapter 15. But for now, Paul and Barnabas continue on their mission. And as was their mode of operation, they went to the local synagogues to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. And this is something that we hear all throughout Acts. Everywhere Paul went, he would start first at the synagogue and go in and preach Jesus. But in Acts 13, this is really the only time that we get to hear the words that Paul actually spoke on those occasions. Now, we'll hear other sermons from Paul. The next chapter, in chapter 14, he'll preach to the pagans. Uh, in chapter 17, he'll preach to the philosophers in Athens, <laughs> but this is his only recorded sermon to his Jewish brothers. And I think the reason why Luke only felt the need to record this one sermon is because Paul's message was so consistent. He preached the same way. He preached the same message everywhere he went. <laughs> he preached the fundamental message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Paul would later summarize his gospel, the gospel that he preached and that he received in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. He says that this gospel is a message of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And as we start going through Paul's message in Acts 13, you'll see that it matches up perfectly with this description of the gospel in 1 Corinthians. This is the glorious gospel of the blessed God, the gospel that Paul had been entrusted to, the good deposit that we have been entrusted with. So before we dig into this message of grace, I want to address those of you who don't know Jesus. This was Paul's audience in the synagogue that day in Acts 13. And so I want to speak to you specifically. See, Paul's audience, he was made up of, it was made up of, um, as Paul calls it, the men of Israel and those who fear God. That is, Jews who had been around the, the Bible, the Old Testament from birth, and Gentiles who had become interested in 
uh, the God of Israel. These were non-Jews, but they had heard about God. They had heard the scriptures and they wanted to follow him and worship him. (laughs) So they had heard about God. They knew the scriptures, but they were missing the most important piece of the puzzle. They didn't know about Jesus. They didn't know Christ. So if you're here and you don't know what you believe, if you're a, if you're a skeptic, if you've been interested in the Bible, but you're, you're not sure if it's trustworthy, or maybe you're here and you completely reject the Bible, I want to talk to you. And I really think that this truth uh, is the most important thing that you could hear. The most important thing that you could hear. And I'm going to summarize the text in this way, that knowing Jesus is a matter of first importance because he is the most important person of all time. You need to know Jesus Not just know about him, but you need to come to know him personally. And that is the most important thing for you because he is the most important person of all time, of all history, whoever lived or whoever will live. So I want you to listen to me closely for the next few minutes. The truth about Jesus and coming to know him will absolutely transform your life starting today and into eternity. And for those of you who have put your faith in Christ, this is for you too. Number one, we need to know how to share the gospel. Paul was given this great opportunity. The rulers of the synagogue said, brothers, bring a word, bring a message. And when we are given similar opportunities and we have a, um, an opportunity where we can open our mouths and talk about Jesus, we need to know what to say. And Paul's message here is such a great model for us. But even more important than that, the gospel of Jesus is the truth that strengthens your faith and that increases the joy of your salvation. We sang like wave after wave on the ocean. The beauty and the glory of Jesus is endless. Knowing him never stops. The Christian life is going deeper and deeper in knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord. Going back to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells Christians, believers, that this is the gospel in which we stand, in which we are currently being saved. We need to hear the gospel story again and again And again. So let's dig into Paul's sermon. And we'll let him answer this question, this all-important question. Who is Jesus? First, he shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. He's the fulfillment of Scripture. And you may not be very familiar with the Bible and that's okay. This is actually a good opportunity. Paul is about to really give you a, a summary of the Bible, especially of the Old Testament. He's going to walk us through this. So let's read verses 16 through 23. So Paul was just invited to, to give a word of exhortation. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen 
The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with un- uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. <coughs> then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Paul begins his sermon by taking us through the the history of God's people, really doing a survey of the Old Testament, showing that it was all leading up to and moving towards the coming of Jesus. God's calling of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the exodus from Egypt, the wilderness wandering, the conquest of Canaan, the time of the judges until Samuel, the first king, Saul and David, the promise and covenant to David. All of this was preparing the way for God to send the promised deliverer, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said at the end of Luke. In chapter 24, verse 44, he told his disciples that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The entire Bible is about him. All of biblical history, all of redemptive history, all of human history is about him. He is the prophet greater than Moses. He's the priest greater than Aaron. He's the king greater than David. He is the promised offspring of the woman who would crush the head of that ancient serpent, the devil. He's the promised child of Abraham who would bless all the nations with salvation. He's the promised son of David who will reign as king forever. The whole Bible from beginning to end, from the first day of creation from the fu- to the final day of judgment, the whole Bible is about Jesus. So if you want to know Jesus, you need to know his word This book is about him. So if you want to know him, you need to get in this book. So if you don't have a copy of God's word, grab one from the back as a gift from us. We want you to read God's word for yourself. And One of the best ways to learn the scriptures and learn more about Jesus is to read with others. There are hundreds of people in this church who would love to read the Bible with you, to answer your questions, to talk to you about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Come to one of our growth groups and you can learn more about what it means to follow Jesus. And for those of you who do know Jesus, I say the exact same thing to you. Get in the word. Get deeper in the word. Look for Jesus in every book of the Bible. Grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior every day. And read the word with others. Find other Christians you can encourage with the word. And invite those who haven't yet believed to read with you. No matter 
who you are, you need to know the overarching story, the grand narrative of the Bible that culminates and finds its climax in Christ Jesus. And next, Paul gets to that climax of the story when he shows us that Jesus is the Son of God in verses 24 and 25. Paul said, Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. The last old covenant prophet, the one who prepared the way for the Lord's coming, was John the Baptist. John's message was always pointing away from himself and pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the one whom God's people had been waiting for. He said that Jesus was greater than he was, so much greater that he wasn't even worthy to untie his sandals. John also said in John chapter 1 that he who comes after me, which is Jesus, ranks before me because he was before me. Now remember, John the Baptist was Jesus' older cousin. So it would seem like John came first, not Jesus. But not so. John knew that while Jesus was a man, he wasn't just a man. John knew that Jesus was the Son of the living God. Jesus is God incarnate. He said that I and the Father are one. He said that before Abraham was, I am. He's the living word, the word made flesh that dwelt among us. He's the image of the invisible God. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is God's son, the heir of all things, the radiance of God's glory, and the exact imprint of his nature He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is Jesus. The true Jesus. Fully God and fully man. 100% human, 100% divine. And if you're going to know Jesus, you need to know him rightly as he is. He is not merely a teacher or an example or a prophet. He is not an angel or an archangel. He is God in the flesh. And the reason that knowing Jesus is a matter of first importance is because Jesus is God in the flesh. If you want to know the God who made you, you don't have to work your way up to heaven because he has come down to earth to show you exactly what he's like and to reconcile you to himself. Again, he is the exact imprint of God's nature, which means if you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. Read about Jesus. And the amazing thing is that the Son of God humbled himself. He left the glorious joys of heaven and came to earth to die, which leads to our next point. 
that Jesus is the sacrifice for sin. (laughs) Now, when Paul spoke these words, he was speaking to people who their whole lives have been saturated with sacrifices for sin. We may not be as familiar with this uh, in in our day, but, but Paul is going to explain exactly why this is so important. Read with me in verses 26 through 29. Paul proclaimed, Brothers, son of the fam- sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. The scriptures were clear. The coming Messiah was going to die a sacrificial death. But as Paul says, even though the Jewish leaders had heard these scriptures every Sabbath day, though they had studied them, they unintentionally fulfilled them by condemning their Messiah to death on a cross. The scriptures he fulfilled were written hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before his death. For instance, the death of Christ perfectly fulfilled Psalm 22 that said they would divide his garments and cast lots for his clothes and that they would pierce his hands and feet. His death fulfilled Psalm 34 that said not one of his bones would be broken and Zechariah 12 that said his side would be pierced. Jesus also fulfilled the whole chapter of Isaiah 53, but specifically that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. Christ was crucified for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And as we've just seen, the Old Testament prophesied and foretold his death. And the New Testament further explained the meaning and significance of his death. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the true sacrifice, the final sacrifice, the one who atoned for the sins of all who would believe in him. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Galatians chapter 3. He was put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a wrath-absorbing, justice-satisfying sacrifice through his precious blood. Romans chapter 3. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Colossians chapter 2. In verse 28, Paul says that they found in him no guilt worthy of death. So he was not just the sacrifice. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was the most holy one. He was the sinless, spotless son of God. That's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's true that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. If you're going to come to know Jesus, you must know that he loved you even unto death. Imagine if just another person sacrificed for you by laying down their life, how you would think of them. But God himself died for you. 
He went to the cross for you. He became your sin. He bore the full weight of God's wrath and the penalty against your sin that you deserve. And his death can become your life. And his death can become your life because of the next point that Paul makes, that Jesus is not merely the sacrifice for sin, but he is also the resurrected king. So verse 30, but going back just a little bit, it said, they took him down from the tree. They laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring to you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he also says in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. <laughs> the death of Christ really is good news. But it's only good news if he didn't stay dead. A dead savior can't save you. A dead king can't help you. But praise the Lord, death had no claim on him and the grave couldn't hold him. Jesus has been raised from the dead, never to die again. Christ the Lord is risen. And this resurrection, Paul says, was attested to by eyewitnesses. For several weeks, the risen Jesus appeared to his disciples, talking with them and eating with them. They physically touched him to make sure that he wasn't a ghost or that they weren't hallucinating. And it wasn't just the 12 disciples. He was seen by over 500 eyewitnesses at one time. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is a well-attested historical reality. But his resurrection was also supported by the witness of Scripture. Again, Paul goes back to the Old Testament where he quotes three passages, Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, and Psalm 16. And he could have quoted many, many more. And what's beautiful in these passages is that they each have two things in common, resurrection and royalty. Resurrection and royalty. <laughs> Jesus' resurrection was a royal resurrection. He was raised to reign as king forever over a kingdom that would have no end. Paul quotes Isaiah 55.3 and says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Jesus is Great David's greater son, the one who was promised to reign on David's throne forever. And that can only happen with a king who has conquered death itself. As Paul would write later in Romans chapter 1, Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh, and he was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Paul also quotes Psalm 16, where David said, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol the grave, and you will not let your holy one see corruption. And then Paul says in verse 36 and 37, he says, David wrote that 
But he died. He was buried. (laughs) He decayed. He saw corruption. So David obviously wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about his promised son, the son of David, the Messiah. In the history of Israel, there were a lot of kings. Some of them were rotten to the core and eventually died. And some of them were overall, except for a few things here and there, overall good kings, like David, who served God's purpose in his generation. But even the best of kings would all eventually die. But Jesus, he is the best of kings. He is the superlative sovereign, and he is risen to rule and reign. Because after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And to top things off, Paul quotes maybe one of my favorite scriptures, Psalm 2, a coronation psalm for the crowning of a king which says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Through his resurrection from the dead, Jesus has been made the heir of all things and his inheritance is the nations, even to the ends of the earth. Remember the resurrected Christ said that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. He has been crowned the Lord of all. He must reign until every enemy has been put under his feet and the last enemy to be defeated is death. The reality is every one of us is going to face death. There's no escaping it. There's no getting out of here alive. The grave is coming for every single one of us. Death really is the ultimate enemy, unless you know Jesus. Jesus is alive, and he can give you life, life eternal, life abundant, life unending, the very life of God. You can know him in the power of his resurrection today. You can be set free from the fear of death today. You can have a living hope that one day your body will be raised from the dead and you can worship around the throne of Christ in a new heavens and a new earth. You can have that hope today. You can also have the hope of forgiveness because of what Paul says next, that Jesus is the source of forgiveness. We see this in verses 38 and 39 where Paul said, let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You not only need to be set free from the fear of death, but also from the guilt of sin. I think one of the reasons why we tend to fill our lives with so much noise is to try to suppress and drown out our guilty conscience. We fill our lives with TV and music and videos and podcasts to avoid thinking about and facing the hard reality of our moral failures. But when you're in bed at night and you can't sleep and memories and pictures of of past sins flash into your mind, Things that you've done that you wish you could forget, but you can't. You know that you have a problem. 
you know that you're guilty. And the world tries to solve this problem in many ways. One way that I've seen a lot, even recently, is what I would call the false gospel of self-forgiveness. Just do a, a Google search, and you'll find page after page of advice on the need to forgive yourself. For instance, here's some advice that I found. Uh, I just compiled it together. That, that When you're feeling guilty, here's the world's advice for you. Just tell yourself over and over again, I forgive myself, I forgive myself, I forgive myself. Distract yourself from your guilty feelings. Just try to get your mind off of it. Consider all the things that you've done right. Try to outweigh your bad with the good. (laughs) Write down all your dirty secrets on a piece of paper and then rip it up and do a happy dance. It's a real piece of advice. (laughs) And you can do those things all you want. And your guilt will never go away because you don't need forgiveness from yourself. You need forgiveness from the one who made you. And praise God that verse 38 is true, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. He is the source and fount of forgiveness. And since Jesus is the king and he's a good king and a compassionate king and a gracious king, he extends to you a royal pardon. You don't need to forgive yourself. You need to rest in the finished work of Jesus. Rest in his forgiveness of you. It really is finished. Verse 39 expounds on this forgiveness. The word that Paul uses in verse 39 that is translated in the ESV as freed, it's actually the the same word for justified. Justified just meaning you are declared to be righteous. Your crimes are acquitted. You're counted as if you never sinned. It means you can stand in the divine court before God, the judge, and his gavel can come down and you can hear the words, not guilty. So let's read that verse again, verse 39, but this in mind. And by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed or is justified from everything from which you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law can't save you. Doing good deeds can't reconcile you to God. Being a decently good person, an above average person, can never get you into hell, to heaven. And if God's law can't save you, how much less our own man-made laws, our own personal standards of of self-help and self-forgiveness and just doing better. It can't save us. You have sinned against your maker. And even one sin separates you from God. And the only person who has solved the problem of sin is Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul is in the region of Galatia at this point in time. Just a few months later, he's going to be writing his letter to the Galatians. And I realized that really those six chapters of Galatians is him just unfolding what he said in verse 39. But in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, Paul wrote, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, are under God's judgment. 
For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, if you want to be accepted by God based on your good merit or your good performance, then it's actually quite simple. Just be 100% morally perfect from the time of your birth to the moment of your death. Be 100% morally perfect from the time of your birth to the moment of your death. Not one mistake, not one slip up, nothing. Now, if that's not you, then I'm here to tell you that you need Jesus. You need to put your trust in him, the full weight of your faith in him, because the righteous shall live by faith. Jesus, if you call on him, if you call on his name, Jesus will cancel your record of debt and nail your sins to the cross. He will remove your sin as far from you as the east is from the west. He will trample your sins underfoot and cast them into the sea of forgetfulness. He will be merciful towards your iniquities and remember your sins no more. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul says that Jesus will free you. He will justify you from everything, every sin you've ever committed, every sin you will commit, every sin you've ever thought of committing. You can be set free and justified and forgiven. Put your faith in Jesus. He is the only source of forgiveness because he's the only one who has truly solved the problem of sin because he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I want you to think about it this way. Imagine that you're living on the streets. You're starving. You haven't eaten in weeks. And someone comes up to you and they say, I have two options. You, you can only pick one. Option A. I'll take you to an all-you-can-eat buffet. I'll pay for it. Free of charge. You can eat until you're full. Option B is I have this really nice cookbook. I can see you're hungry. So I thought these might be two good options. You can pick one. You would be a fool to pick the cookbook. Not because there's anything wrong with the cookbook. It's good. And the law is good. Paul says the law is good and righteous and holy. We delight in the law. When you become a Christian, the law of God is written on your heart, but it doesn't have the power to save. It doesn't have the power to save. Only in Christ are we offered grace upon grace. So take all of your good deeds and count it all as rubbish so that you may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of your own that comes from the law, but the righteousness from God that comes through faith. Count it all as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And finally, as Paul ends his sermon, he gives us a potent warning when he shows us that Jesus Christ is the righteous judge. He's the righteous judge. This is in verses 40 through 41. Paul concludes by saying, beware. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers. Be astounded and perish. 
For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Now here Paul quotes from the, the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. And the first time I ever heard this verse, I was a brand new Christian and someone said that uh, they had found this verse. It was very encouraging to them because God is doing something in their future that is so amazing that they wouldn't even believe it if, if God told it to them. And that is an encouraging thought, but that's not actually what that passage is saying. It's actually saying quite the opposite. This was an oracle of judgment. God was telling Israel, I am preparing such a severe judgment that you wouldn't believe it if I told you. In that day, he was raising up the Babylonian army to come in and destroy the city of Jerusalem and exile the people because of their sins against God. In our day, the warning is even more severe. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice and righteousness by the man he has appointed, Jesus Christ. And he has attested to that fact by raising him from the dead. A day of judgment. A day of reckoning. A day where all wrongs will be set right is coming. Paul said in Romans chapter 2 that because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed when he will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God is preparing something and many people will not believe it. But whether you believe it or not, that day is coming. Whether you believe it or not, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account. That day is coming. We all must die, and then comes the judgment. Now you might be thinking, why are you talking about God's wrath and God's judgment when you were just telling us about his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy? The reason Paul moves immediately from forgiveness, an offer of forgiveness, to a warning of judgment is this. If you hear the gospel, the good news of God's grace, and you reject it, that's the most dangerous choice you could ever make. To hear God's offer of salvation, to have him extend to you forgiveness, and for you to turn it down, will lead you down the path of utter destruction. Earlier, Paul quoted Psalm 2, and that passage ends like this. The psalmist said, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. He's saying, turn to the Lord while there's time. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Christ is offering you salvation today. Kiss the son. Pay homage to the king. Bow down before him and submit to him as your Lord and master now while the offer still stands. Because if you reject it, if you dig your heels in in your rebellion against God, then he will be quick to wrath. But if you turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, if you find refuge in his grace, you'll find that he is not quick to wrath, but he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love.
So there's hope. There's hope. Paul didn't want that fate for his audience. I don't want that fate for you. Today is the day of salvation. Today. So with those words, Paul finished his sermon. And the crowd responded in verses 42 and 43. It says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The crowd had heard the word of God. They had heard the gospel of grace, and they were begging to hear more. That is the right response. A desperation to hear more, a begging to hear more, a hunger and a thirst to hear more about Jesus. And Paul urged them to continue in the grace of God. If you were, came here this morning, that was the grace of God to you. You have heard the gospel. You are without excuse. Salvation has been offered to you. Continue in the grace of God. Don't take the grace given to you and leave and forget about it and neglect it. Continue in his grace. Put your faith in Jesus. And for those of you who are Christians, I think that phrase summarizes the entire Christian life. Continuing, remaining, abiding in the grace of God. The Christian life is grace from beginning to end, from your baptism to your funeral. It is all of grace. It is all of grace. And even into eternity, even into eternity, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that he saved us so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. One of the greatest joys of heaven is going to be going deeper and deeper and deeper into the wells of sovereign grace. So I urge you, I beg you, and I plead with you, continue in the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that you haven't left us in the dark, but you have sent us your own son, I pray that our hearts would exult in him. I pray that our spirit would rejoice in him. I pray that he would be highly exalted. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, if there's anyone here who is being stirred and convicted in their spirit by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. You would bring them to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would just continue to show us the glories of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name and for your great glory. Amen.